This is the Journal of Ecology podcast. I'm Scott Chamberlain. Herbivores can sometimes facilitate plant or algal growth, but how does this happen? And can facilitation, a positive interaction, be bad for the environment? Carol Thurnboer is a professor at the University of Rhode Island. I recently caught up with Carol at the Ecological Society of America meeting in Portland in August. Can you briefly introduce yourself? Sure. This is Carol Thornburg. I'm an associate professor at the University of Rhode Island, and I'm a marine community ecologist. And I've been at Rhode Island for eight years now. Great. Uh, So what problem was your study trying to solve, or what motivated your study? Well, in in coastal estuaries worldwide, uh, macroalgal blooms, that's blooms of seaweed, um, are becoming an increasing problem. And um, where I live in Rhode Island, Narragansett Bay is a large coastal estuary that has been plagued by macroalgal blooms for over 100 years now. And so one of, one of the research areas my lab has gotten interested in is trying to determine some of the causes and consequences of these blooms. And in particular, we are looking at herbivore impacts on these blooms. Could herbivores control bloom, bloom biomass? And pretty quickly through doing some introductory um, introductory experiments, we realized that actually instead of the dominant herbivore, instead of consuming significant quantities of this olive, was actually causing it to grow more. And these results were very surprising to us. Okay, so could you describe uh, some of the natural history of the study system? Maybe uh, what does the habitat look like in the organisms? Sure. It's... um, this coastal system, it's, it's a large estuary, about 150 square miles or so. Um, it's open to the Atlantic o- Ocean on its southern end, and it's um, bounded by land primarily on its northern, northern terminus. So you have a, a latitudinal gradient with the city of Providence, which is the capital city of Rhode Island on the north end, putting in lots of nutrient inputs into the system, and a relatively more um, more rural and less nutrient-impacted system towards the mouth of the bay at the, at the southern end. Um, the bay has a mixture of different um, marine habitat types. We are primarily working along sandy and muddy shorelines, but there are cobble beaches um, as well as some rocky shoreline down to, more to the south of the bay. Could you briefly describe what you found in the study? Yes. So in this study, we looked at um, the interaction between um, some bloom-forming macroalgae, the genus Ulva, and the most abundant herbivore in this system, which is an omnivorous mudwhelk, Ilionasa obsoleta. And so we did a series of laboratory and field studies to see, does Ilionasa significantly impact Ulva growth? And our net results where we found Ilionasa um, typically facilitates the growth of two, the both dominant bloom-forming Ulva species in the system. So you mentioned the coexistence of two ulva species, uh, that their coexistence may be facilitated uh, by different facilitation mechanisms. Um, Could you explain this in more detail? Sure. So um, one of the dominant genera of bloom-forming macroalgae is the green alga, ulva, and um, the two most abundant species within that genus, ulva compressa and ulva rigida. And so what we determined was that... um, this, the dominant snail in this system is facilitating the growth of both of these species, but by through different mechanisms. So with Ulva compressa, we realized when we um, when we did experiments with caging those snails, um, they were still they were still um, impacting the Ulva growth by um, release of nitrogenous waste products. So essentially, the snails are there; they're consuming tissue. 
they're defecating, and then that released nitrogen, the ulva compressa is using to grow. Um, ulva rigida, it was a different story. With ulva rigida, actually, um, the primary mechanism by which that species is facilitated is by the snail removing um, colonial diatoms. So these are, are single-celled um, photosynthetic organisms that frequently colonize surfaces of these blades. And so the snail is going around essentially like a little lawnmower and mowing off all of the diatoms and thereby releasing that ulva blade from competition. Okay. Um, so, so what do you think um, caused a lack of uh, facilitation effect in the field? Well, we've realized there's, there, are, there are several differences between our, um, our mesocosm studies in seawater systems, in flowing seawater systems, and our field system. One of the dominant um, differences is the um, levels of dissolved inorganic nutrients, particularly nitrogen in the system. It can be up to eight times higher at our field sites versus in our flow-through seawater system, simply because the blooms occur at, at the northern end of the bay that is heavily um, heavily eutrophied, and our seawater systems are at our my university's um, marine campus, which is located at the southern end of the bay. So nutrients, there might be some other factors, but it seems like nutrients is one of the dominant ones. Um, so we usually think of uh, facilitation as sort of a good thing. It's sometimes lumped into to mutualism, um, mm -hmm. um, but in this case, it, it seems to be a bad thing if the facilitation is leading to, to algae uh, algal blooms. Yes, it was. It was very surprising to us that um, what is frequently thought of, you're right, as sort of a positive mechanism, could be in fact making a potential problem that occurs naturally even even worse. Um, what we what we don't know is. Um, the combined impacts of some of the some of the other species in the system, particularly say species of fish, which are much more transient in their abundance, um, if they're say coming in during high tide, and it's something my lab is starting to work on now, and leaving when it's low tide, would they potentially could they potentially offset um, any any facilitative effect that the snails might be having? So that's that's sort of another twist to the story mm -hmm. that we're starting to get into now. Okay, so the so the facilitation effect is just sort of one interaction, and there may the, the, the sort of overall effect might be different when you study different yes. parts of that that sort of module of species. Right. Okay. okay. Uh, so so how general do you think uh, the results from your study are? Uh, in what cases do you expect the same or different patterns? We think our results could be fairly general. We see um, blooms of this of this genus of algae in coastal lagoons worldwide, and some other studies in some other locations have hinted at similar um, similar facilitation mechanisms going on in both ulva as well as Clodophora, which is another green algal genus that can form form some blooms. Um, Occasionally, there, there's, there's definitely a paucity of studies out there. There's only a very, very small handful of studies that have been done looking at potential facilitative mechanisms. But um, our results seem to be in line with the same, some of the same driving mechanisms as some of these other studies. So we suspect it's probably much more widespread than people thought. Just It just hasn't been looked at. What do you think are the consequences for the, for the field of this paper? I think there are, there are several different consequences. One is... Um, Definitely any research paper you do, you say, oh, more research is needed. Right. I mean, now we need to figure out all these other right. potential interactions. Um, I, think it, I think it opens up an area of algal bloom ecology that has been relatively understudied. Most of the studies, the really nice studies that have been done on 
uh, macroalgal blooms have been done from an ecosystem nutrient perspective, a nutrient cycling perspective. Um, there is definitely not as much work that has been looked at these um, these blooms from a community ecology perspective, sort of a top-down perspective. Mm -hmm. And so I think this study sort of does a, a really nice job of tying together some potential nutrient impacts, but coming from snails, not coming from, say, um, a sewage treatment plant, though that may be the ultimate origin of these nutrients, along with potential top-down impacts and competitive impact interactions between the bloom-forming algae and diatoms that are another part of the community. Right. So what do you think was the most challenging part of the study? <laughs> there, there were several challenging parts. Um, one of the largest ones for us is that this is the system in which we work is not a pristine system, and it is heavily impacted by humans. People have their houses right there on the shorelines where we're working. There's com com recreational fishers, there's boaters, there's people going swimming in, in the beach. And so um, one of the biggest problems we had was doing the field component of the study, setting out experimental cages that were large enough to do um, to conduct our experiment satisfactorily, but that were small enough that they would not be highly visible to beachgoers. So and people we, would tamper with them? People would tamper with them, not, not um, mostly benign tampering, just they're kind of curious. They're out yeah. here swimming, and all of a sudden, what are these little plastic Tupperware things yeah. doing in the water? And one time, my graduate student told me they had a fisherman actually try to hook one of their buoys because he thought it was a drifting buoy that wasn't, you know, that was just sort of drifting, yeah. and they had to explain that, no, this is part of, you know, part of a research yeah. project. So we weren't able to set up much larger enclosures like we might yeah. want to do to really get at some of these blue mechanisms or put put some of the cages within, tuck them within large algal bloom mats um, just based on human, the high level of human access. Right. Right. Um, so do you have any interesting stories uh, from the field or lab? <laughs> we, we have some. Um, I had to consult with my grad student on this since this, I should mention, this is her part of her PhD research. Um, Several times, we always have undergraduates come out in the field with us because mm -hmm. you need, frequently need many yes. sets of hands, and some of them may have not been out in the field so much. So we frequently had student undergraduates get stuck out in the mud and have to get pulled out and rescued. Mm -hmm. um, and that was that was that was probably the, the best, the most routine thing that happened, as well as. Um, our, the fishermen trying to hook our buoy for and not realizing, <laughs> not realizing quite what it was for. Right. Um, the, the laboratory work went, went fairly more smoothly because you can control many more aspects of that. Are there any uh, political implications or connections to this research? There actually are several, and that's, that's made it both a, a fun and a challenging part of this research project. Um, algal blooms are a large problem in this bay from the perspective of humans who want to use the bay for recreation. So. Fishermen frequently get quite frustrated when we have a bloom because then their, their boats get stuck and their props get covered with seaweed. They can't fish. Recreational boaters have lots of issues with it um, for similar reasons. And also, even the governor of our state likes to paddleboard, and so he lives right on one of the inlets of Narragansett Bay where blooms frequently occur and right near some of our sampling sites. And he is even out there paddleboarding around and getting stuck sometimes in these blooms. So it definitely has, there's a very tangible connection that the citizens of the state can make with these blooms. They're something that lots of them see and encounter on a regular basis, and it's usually not a positive interaction. We've been speaking with Carol Thornburr, a professor at the University of Rhode Island for the Journal of Ecology podcast. I'm Scott Chamberlain. <laughs>